Hello and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today we are joined by David Packhouse. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bart. Yeah, this is a cool one, man. This is going to be a little bit different than normal because we are going to be talking about your background as, you know, working as a government uh, contract gun runner. There's all kinds of interesting stuff. It's a crazy story, uh, which has been told in the movie uh, War Dogs, which had Miles Teller, Jonah Hill. Very, very. I mean, it was a that's a it was a huge Hollywood mm-hmm. movie, which is super cool. But I'm just letting people know right now. I realize this is different than the classic drum history episodes that are maximum drum nerdery. So we're going to talk for about 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes about David's story with like Afghanistan and things like that and bullets and guns. Uh, we're not getting involved in political stuff, anything like that. It's just a true story that happened with them. Then after that, we get into the drum-related stuff with the Beat Buddy, which is what we're talking about, which is if you're on YouTube behind David. But just know that very soon, the next couple weeks, there's going to be some super heavy uh, drum-related stuff coming out. This is a bit of a break from that. All that being said, David, why don't you tell us about what happened, the whole story about getting involved with gun running and, uh, and all that good stuff? Um, yeah, well, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm most well known for, um, for being the subject of the film War Dogs, which is, uh, uh, I was played by Miles Teller in the film, uh, for, for your audience, he's the guy that, uh, was the star in Whiplash. <laughs> I was just thinking that I was like, that's a little drummer. Yeah. You know, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, I, I, when I heard he was playing me, I thought oh, that's, that's a cool connection. Cause he yeah. is a drummer and I invented a drum machine. So, yeah. uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, I gave him a beat buddy actually when I met him on set and really? he, he thought it was very cool, but, uh, I was very upset. He didn't tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want is he yeah. re- he is he a really uh a drummer i mean i assume yeah 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 no he's like a, before he's Whiplash a real drummer. he was yeah yeah wow okay he's, okay he's a real drummer he used to be like in a band in high school and stuff cool uh, obviously not his main profession these days but uh yep. he makes way more money as an actor than as a drummer but uh <laughs> yeah it worked out for him yeah but yeah but no he really does play the drums but to go back to the story um it started when I was, uh, I was in my early 20s. I was 22 years old. I was in college uh, studying chemistry because I'm a science nerd and um, had a few side businesses. I was also working as a massage therapist. Um, that makes it into the movie. They love, they love making jokes about that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I also had a few side businesses selling uh, SD cards on eBay. I was importing uh, uh, bed sheets and towels from Pakistan, selling them to, uh, to nursing homes in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. That also makes it into the movie, though. They change it a little bit. You know, I was actually, I was doing wholesale in the movie. They have me like going from like door to door. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know that's not how it was, but it's okay. For sure. for the people who just, I'll say this up front: the movie is about seventy percent accurate, as most Hollywood films are not a hundred percent. It's definitely not a a um, a documentary of any sort. Uh, for the people who want to get the 100% accurate story, I would recommend a book by uh, Guy Lawson, um, spelled G-U-I, like Guy, but it's, it's pronounced Guy Lawson. He's a, a journalist. He was working for Rolling Stone at the time, and uh, he wrote 
a Rolling Stone article about the story and then later expanded it into the book and they based the movie off the book. So the book was, he did a whole bunch of reporting on the book and he found out stuff I didn't know. Like he'd interviewed um, uh, people from the government side and found out what was going on internally, uh, you know, in the government while we were doing our thing. And he put it yeah. all together into a, a pretty uh, comprehensive and engaging book. And so anyone who wants the full details, I'd recommend the book. But to give you the uh, slightly shortened uh, podcast version of the story, um, while I was uh, uh working as uh you know working part-time and uh, going to college uh bumped into a friend of mine uh, his name was Ephraim de Viroli uh, I had grown up with him we went to the same synagogue we're both Jewish um so we went to the same synagogue as kids uh we met because neither of us liked to pray and so we'd sneak out of prayers and go hang out on the basketball court and um and so that's kind of how we met. And uh, but then he got sent off to his uh, uncle uh, when he was about 16 years old because he got kicked out of uh, a Jewish private school because he was got caught smoking weed. And so they were like, oh, if you're not taking the rules of the school seriously, you're going to go join the real world. You're going to get get a job. So they sent him off to his uncle to work in his uncle's um, warehouse. Uh, his uncle had a big warehouse and a big pawn shop in South Central LA. And one of the things his uncle sold was guns, uh, as most pawn shops do. So he got obsessed as a 16-year-old boy. He got obsessed with guns, became a real gun nut, uh, started you know, learning all about them. He started uh, doing these tr uh, trades online where he would buy some gun from one person on the internet and sell it at a markup to another person. Uh, there are these forums, they call them gun boards. Um, where you can do this. And of course, he was too young to actually do this business. So he was doing everything under, under his uncle's name. His uncle got into uh, selling um, uh, guns to the local police uh, because, you know, he liked having the local cops by his store. And so the cops said, hey, you want to sell the, a decent amount? You have to go through the system. Uh, you got to learn how to bid on government contracts. That's how the government buys things. They put things out for bid and then companies who want to sell stuff to the government, um, whether it's guns or boots or anything else, um, you need to uh, bid on, on, the, on the website. And so his uncle started doing that. He learned from his uncle how to do that. They started bidding on local and state police contracts, uh, selling uh, you know, bulletproof vests, uh, handguns, boots, everything. Hmm. And they started doing okay. And uh, after about two years, when he was 18, he had a falling out with his uncle and he decided to move back to Miami. He claims his uncle screwed him out of 70 grand. His uncle claims that he screwed him out of 70 grand. You know, I, I, I don't know who's right. I believe them yeah. both. They're, they, uh, they both have, you know, bad reputations for doing these kinds of things. So sure. um, eventually Ephraim screwed me out of millions. So, you know, I, I, you know, either one of them could be, could be right as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Uh, but um, anyway, Ephraim moves back to Miami, starts, uh, takes over uh, one of his dad's business um structures, AEY Inc., and uh, starts uh, registers it with the federal government and starts bidding on federal contracts. This was in 2004, right after the invasion of Iraq. 
And there were these huge, uh, George Bush pretty much decided to make the entire uh, procurement process privatized and uh, with a large element um, reserved for small businesses. So, uh, which obviously he qualified as. So he started winning a lot of contracts, um, started doing very well. After about a year, I bumped into him at a mutual friend's house and he asked me, you know, what I was doing these days. And I told him about, you know, I was going to university and uh, had these various side businesses, uh, importing sheets from Pakistan and SD cards from China and all that. And he's like, oh, you know, the, the kind of thing you're doing, it actually has a lot of similarities, very similar to what I'm doing. You have to go find international suppliers, uh, negotiate the best price, uh, arrange the best logistics possible, work on import permits and and uh, and uh, you know make all the arrangements, figure out the financing. You know it's like a lot of the same similar activities that that I'm doing, but I bet I'm making way more money than you. So you should you know I need a partner. You should come work for me. I could we can work make a lot more money together. And I said, well, uh, how much money have you made? You know, and he goes, he's like, he's like, okay, okay, I'll tell you, but only to inspire you, not, not, not because I'm bragging. Okay. And I said, okay, you know, and he opens up his laptop and he logs into his, his bank account, his, uh, banking system. And, and he shows me his bank account and it says right there, bank of America, he had about $1.8 million in cash in the bank right then. Wow. And Jeez. he was 18 years old and I knew he'd only been working on his own for like a year. And I was like, holy crap, this guy's uh, making way more money than I am. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so he, he definitely knows a business that uh, I don't and I could learn a lot. And so this is a huge opportunity. So I said, okay, I'm in. Teach me what you know. And um, so we started working together. He started, he taught me how the whole federal procurement system works. And uh, I didn't know anything about guns at the time. I've never been, never really cared about guns. I've always, I've actually been, always been a musician. I played guitar since I was 15 years old. Um, and so I was much more of like, kind of like, a, a, more of like a hippie musician than anything at the time. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I just saw it as a, big business opportunities. So I learned the whole system started uh, the first contract I won wasn't for even for weapons. It was um, for fuel. I won uh, uh, for 50,000 gallons of propane. We delivered to uh, Air Force Base in Wyoming. That was the first uh, contract I won. Made, wow. made $8,000. And I was like, oh, that's not bad for a few weeks of work. Um, but it's not millions. So I kept on, you know, working and won a few other semi-small contracts, uh, you know, and uh, then that summer, about eight, nine months after we started working together, uh, we saw one of the biggest uh, uh, requests for proposal, they call it RFP, RFP um, yeah. or request for quote, depending on what kind of system it is, but um, uh, that we've seen like ever. And it was for a lot of the ammunition that we'd already, that he, I should say, had already been delivering to Iraq. And so we had what they call past performance, which is proof to the government that you've done this kind of business in the past, which some, uh, the big contracts require that you, you can't bid on it unless you could prove you can deliver these kinds of things. So, uh, so we had the past performance and it was one of the biggest things we'd ever seen. So we decided to go for it. We ended up winning it. Um, took us about six months for the whole process to win. 
and uh, it was uh, a contract to supply the entire Afghan National Army, which the United States was allied with at the time, uh, with all their munitions for like the next decade or two. And uh, it was worth $300 million. Yeah. 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 Big jump. Huge jump. I mean, prior to that, the biggest contract we, you know, we as a company had won um, was uh, about $15 million, which is still very big. But but, yeah, but this is 20 times bigger than that. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, we started uh, delivering the, it was for like 30 different types of munitions. So everything from handguns, handgun bullets all the way to tank rounds to anti-aircraft rockets grenades uh so it was like around 30 different types of munitions and um we started delivering some of them and then we realized that the the biggest uh amount of the music of the munitions as far as um as far as logistics went not necessarily as far as the value was uh, because it was high quantity, low value, was the ammo for the AK-47, which is what the the standard ammo for Afghan and Iraqi soldiers. Hmm. And uh, the place we sourced it from was Albania, which is this, for people who don't know, is a tiny little country near Greece. And um, so when we went to go inspect it uh, before we were going to deliver it, we realized that there was Chinese markings all over the boxes and Chinese documentation inside the ammo tins. And so we realized this ammo had all come originally from China. And we didn't know this until we went to inspect it. What happened was that the that uh, Albania, during the Cold War, um, pulled out of the Soviet Union and made an alliance with China because the the dictator of the place was uh, thought that the Soviets were uh, not true communists and that the Chinese were. And so uh, the Chinese were happy to have an ally in Europe. So they supplied him with a huge amount of weapons and ammunition. And, um, and he built a huge network of bunkers all over the country to store all this stuff and so it would be safe from airstrikes because he thought that the soviet union would invade him because you know because he pulled out and he also thought that nato would invade him because he's communist so he mm. thought the two world superpowers were going to invade his tiny little country and his plan was that that his entire citizenry would all fight to the death and, and none called, of that yeah, happened. Yeah, none of that happened, right? So sure. all so the bunkers filled with ammo and weapons got left over after the Cold War ended. And um, during this time, this is like 2006, 2007, uh, Albania wanted to join NATO. Uh, and NATO had a condition that they have to destroy all their old weapons and ammunition. So they would have to actually pay for this stuff to be dismantled. And so they were willing to sell it for pretty much anything. And so that's how we got a very, very good deal on it. But we didn't know that it was originally Chinese. And the reason this was a problem for us was because um, our contract with the U.S. Army um, said specifically no Chinese ammunition could be delivered directly or indirectly under this contract. And the reason they put that in there is because there's an arms embargo against China that was placed against China in 1989 after the um, Tiananmen Square massacre, where a bunch of Chinese uh, uh, university students protested. They wanted democracy. 
this was worldwide news at the time. It was, yeah. There were like thousands of them in the middle of the square in Beijing, in Tiananmen Square. Uh, and uh, pretty much the government, they were out there for a long time. Eventually, the government drove in tanks and killed most of them. And it yep. was a huge international um, uh, uh, scandal. And uh, the United States, to punish the Chinese military for doing that, put an arms embargo against China, which still stands to this day. So it's illegal for U.S. citizens or companies to buy or sell Chinese ammunition or weapons or military equipment in general from China. Um, however, it's legal for you to buy Chinese military equipment if it was bought when it was legal. So if you imported uh, Chinese ammo into the United States in 1988 while it was still legal, in 1990, you could still sell that ammo because you bought it legally. Yeah. So you could sell it legally. So this ammo was given to the Albanians um, in the 70s, so way before it was illegal. So we figured it was legal as far as the as far as the um, embargo was concerned. However, our contract, our commercial contract with the with the U.S. Army, didn't mention the embargo at all. It just said you can't deliver Chinese ammo. Period. Sure. And so we were faced with a choice: we could either go to the U.S. Army and say, "Hey, guys, we know you put this clause in here because of the embargo." This ammo doesn't violate the embargo. Can you please give us a waiver uh, to deliver this ammo? Because you know this is the stuff that uh, we were planning on delivering. We already have all the uh, licensing for this. It's a huge pain in the butt to get licensing to move um, military equipment internationally. You have to get um, not only a you know end user certificate from the end customer, but you have to get an export permit from the seller, and then you have to get flyover permits from every country that you fly the stuff over, and which yeah. could be a big pain in the butt, especially when uh, some of those countries aren't friendly to your country, uh, which a lot of the countries weren't. So it took us months to get all these permits. And and it would take us many more months if we were going to switch suppliers. So we we were thinking, well, maybe we should ask the army for a waiver and get them to sign off on this. And which they might say, yeah, you know, we meant this as a reference to the embargo. So no problem. Here's a waiver. And then it wouldn't have been a problem. But they also could have, we figured at the time, say something along the lines of, well, you know, all your competitors for this $300 million contract we're all bidding on the condition that they can't deliver Chinese ammo, period. And yeah. so it's not really fair that you go and deliver Chinese ammo and get a waiver after the fact. It's not, you know, and so what we have to do as far as uh, uh, competitive fairness is take this $300 million contract away from you and put it out for open bid again. Yeah, and, and you don't want to do that. And we didn't want that. We yeah, really, of course. We really, really, really didn't want that. We wanted to keep our $300 million contract. So we figured, well, you know, what they don't know won't hurt them, right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so we decided to, um, to repackage the ammunition and not tell them about it so that we would hide the fact that it was originally Chinese. And we hired an Albanian box manufacturer to do this. He started uh, repackaging the ammo. We started delivering the ammo. Everything was great because the army was desperately in need of the ammo because they, um, this was getting into springtime, which is the official uh, 
fighting season of Afghanistan. They have fighting seasons because, okay, you know, it's, know. V- it's very mountainous and <laughs> lots of snow. And so you can't really go anywhere in the winter in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the springtime, when the passages, you know, the snow melts and the passages become passable in the mountains, that's when, you know, the, the, the gorillas appear out of the mountains and start attacking the cities. And so that's when you need the, um, the uh, ammo to defend them. And the Afghan, our Afghan national allies were at the time running very low on ammo. They desperately needed more ammo. And so the army was pressuring us to deliver as quickly as possible. So, which makes me think in retrospect, they probably would have given us the waiver just because they were so desperate for this stuff. But we just didn't want to risk it. In the end, it turned out to be a much bigger downside that we did that. But, you know, you live and learn, right? Sure. Uh, <laughs> not planning on doing it again, that's for sure. No, um, I don't think you get another opportunity. No, and and I, I will say that in the movie, yeah, if people yeah. watch it, all this is like, I mean, it's directly yeah. in the movie where you can watch it. And I'm visualizing yeah. it because I've seen yeah. it. And it's like, uh, it's crazy, man. I mean, keep keep going mm. here. But uh, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm giving the the short version sure. of this whole of this whole thing because I know we've we've got a you know an hour long podcast and I'm not going to give the, the every detail version. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's the the movie. I was pretty happy with the movie. I thought they did a good job. It's yeah. you know definitely not a documentary as I've said, but no. uh, but they made it a good movie, which um, which I think was is more than you yeah. can ask for. And the Hollywood. gist of it too, though, is you yeah. guys are like you're younger guys who can like party a little bit and have yeah. fun while you're doing it. Yeah. And uh, there's some like beautiful actresses in it and stuff yeah. too, which helps. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, so, so just kind of as that goes on though, it, it's not all fun. And I mean, it's stressful. Yeah. Pretty miserable at certain points. It was. Yeah. As that goes on and you guys have to drive things yourself through like yeah. the triangle of death, if I right. remember correctly. Right. And, so, uh, yeah. That part didn't happen the way they put it in the movie. People okay. always ask me that. So in the movie, we drive a bunch of guns through the Triangle of Death in Iraq, and we almost get killed by a bunch of like insurgents. And And that story is true, but it didn't happen to us. It happened to someone else. So, <laughs> what, you know, so they just wanted to have more action in the film. So they put that in there. The, the, the story, that story actually happened to... Uh, the screenwriter of War Dogs, the guy who wrote the screenplay. Uh, he, bef- the reason he got the job to write the screenplay of War Dogs is because uh, his name is Stephen Chin. Um, his, because uh, he, uh, years before that, he wrote, uh, he wrote a screenplay called Iraq, Iraq, which was about another pair of American contractors who were actually in Iraq, in Baghdad at the time. Uh, and he wanted to interview them of course, at the time, he couldn't get a commercial flight into Baghdad, so he flew into Jordan and hired a Jordanian driver to drive him to Baghdad. And while he was driving to Baghdad, his Jordanian driver decided to stop by Fallujah to get some gas because gas was free in Fallujah and he didn't want to pay, you know, more money for gas in a safer place. And because he is going through Fallujah, which was one of the most uh, insurgent heavy areas in the country, um, they got chased by insurgents and got shot at and eventually got saved by the U.S. Army. So wow. uh, so that whole story actually did happen. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, but I mean, to Steven we've Chin, all done some crazy us. things to yeah, get yeah. a good deal on gas. So <laughs> I, understand, I understand that. We've all right, right, right. Uh, driven across state yeah. lines or something. Maybe yeah. that takes the cake, though, with uh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, All right. Well, that's so how does it let's just give the kind of yeah. again, there's so much details, but give the end of how, how did it all end up? Right. And then we'll get into some actual music. So talk. sure, yeah. sure. So I'll give the uh, wrap up the backstory. Um, <laughs> so uh, so it what happened was Ephraim decided to try because he was always trying to squeeze every penny out of every deal as much as he could. And so um, he tried to get a better deal. Um, out of uh, the repackaging operation uh, by changing to another repackage source, another company to do the repackaging, um, which we saved, you know, a bit of money. Uh, but uh, the original guy who was doing the repackaging got stuck with $20,000 worth of boxes that he had nothing to do with. And he asked Ephraim to uh, at least cover those expenses for him. Ephraim said he would, but then he never did because that's just how he, you know, how he rolled. And so that guy got really pissed and he decided to go tell everyone about what we were doing. And so he told the New York Times that we were doing this repackage operation and and he told the, um, the Justice Department, the FBI about it. And so they opened up an investigation. And his big mistake is that he told the local Albanian uh, press that there were that there were kickbacks being paid to the local Albanian politicians from this contract, which probably was true. It wasn't being paid by us because we were going through an intermediary. The guy who uh, Bradley Cooper plays in the movie, um, his name was Henry, he's a Swiss arms dealer, and we were paying him. He arranged this whole deal for us. It was his connections with the Albanian politicians that made this possible. So we assume he was paying them off, but you know, we didn't. He didn't tell us, and we didn't ask. Uh, but because the box guy um, told the Albanian press that this was happening, um, he ended up dead like a few weeks later. Wow. He was. It was a very. He was in a, a in a car crash that apparently threw him like thirty feet from his vehicle. But he was the only car on the road, and it was like a very deserted area, yeah. and it was a flat road. So it was a very suspicious car crash that uh, nobody can really explain how what he crashed into or how he ended up dead. But mm. um, so yeah, so pe- everyone assumes that it was the Albanian mob who was you know, getting kickbacks from it as well, uh, along yeah. with the politicians that that took him out. Um, so, yeah, but because of that, uh, the um, uh, uh, so the the federal government opened up an investigation on us. And um, at, at around the same time, Ephraim decided to tell me that he didn't think that I deserved the money that we had agreed that I would be paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wanted to give me a tiny fraction of what we had agreed on. And I told him to go, you know, F himself. Yeah. And uh, I told him I'd see him in court. So um, so I quit. And about two months after I quit working for uh, for AEY, for, um, you know, for his company, uh, I was t- I got a call from the uh, from the uh, secretary at the office telling me that the federal the federal government had raided the office and that they were gathering everyone's computers and taking all the files and everything and I was like oh crap you know they know everything and we're screwed and um, the uh, the uh, 
they wanted to you know talk to me of course because they knew that i had quit the company months back and my lawyer told me well you know if you're going to talk to them go look to through your emails and see what incriminating evidence they might have against you because they definitely have all your emails already yeah. they don't raid the office until they already get your emails be yeah. beforehand and possibly phone conversations too who knows what you know what they're listening in on and so i went through all my my <clears throat> excuse me I went through all my emails and it turned out that we were pretty careless <laughs> and there are some emails that um i think originally we were planning on keeping it out of you know incriminating things out of the emails when we first decided to go down this path but it was like we were working 18 20 hour days and had you know have their different time zones we were dealing with afghanistan and europe and america and so very low on sleep and there were times when we were just so tired we're like oh, i don't want to stay up another few hours to talk to this guy on the phone let me just send him a quick email and so i think that's how we um we kind of uh screwed ourselves yeah. but um uh, there were emails that said specifically, make sure you remove the Chinese markings from the boxes, you know? And so, that's the crime. Yeah. That yeah. that was the, to clarify, everything yeah. you were doing with guns were not yeah. like, like that was all on the up and up through the like yeah. government. Mm -hmm. It was the mo it was the replacing the boxes and, but it's not like you were doing some crazy, like supplying mm -hmm. guns to like no. drug lords in the middle of some, no, country. we were, you were just doing a switch on. Correct. Yeah. We just, were not, you know so, what I mean? But yeah, yeah. People, <laughs> people uh, compare war dogs to Lord of war, uh, which is the Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, and cool movie. you know, yeah, great movie. But um, people have asked me, you know, like I think another podcast, like, Oh, how does it feel to be a warlord? And I'm like, I'm not a warlord, not no, even close. I didn't get that vibe. I think you guys <laughs> yeah. just like, saw kind of a loophole in the yeah just, yeah it was all yeah. legal until it wasn't but well, uh yeah, that's a lot of things in life yeah that's true <laughs> so, that's true but i get what you mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it was um, um it was uh, all the ammo was going to our allies and the ammo was uh despite what some media reports later said uh all the ammo was high quality except for a tiny tiny fraction that was rejected by the army and we was not issued to soldiers and we weren't paid for yeah. um but uh uh yeah it was it was all legal it was just we uh you know did this sneaky repackaging thing which is what made it uh fraud they called it we defrauded the government how uh, old were you lying to them uh how old the, were you at that point so at that point i was 24 at that okay at that time yeah pretty young yeah 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 when we started yeah. i was 22 and yeah at that point i was 24 um yeah um it reminds me and this is like i mean the whole thing here i yeah. realize this is not a very drummy episode but there's 220 other head drum heavy episodes people yeah. can really listen to but there's a Netflix uh, documentary called uh, The Pez Outlaw that I would recommend if people like this kind of it's a little less guns and flashy. But there was I believe the story was there was like uh, there was an Eastern European Pez dispenser factory and people mm -hmm. would go there and then sell them. And it was like smuggling operations. Mm -hmm. But it's all around Pez dispensers, that's which you think that's kind of silly. But you would actually really like it. Oh uh, yeah, and I would highly recommend it. It was it was cool. Okay. It's it's a little less. It is just a documentary, but it mm -hmm. uh, it's similar, but but just more 
Pez relate. Replace bullets with Pez dispensers. <laughs> you can make Pez dispensers exciting. I'm curious. <laughs> it was cool. I recommend it, but it's in the same vein of, yeah, of that. Yeah. But that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So yeah. So then how do you go from right gun runner to beat buddy inventor? Right. You know, let's get some music stuff going. Yeah. So uh, to make a long story short, uh, I ended up uh, 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 pleading guilty to uh, one count of uh, defrauding the United States, which doesn't sound great on the old resume, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, they because I pled guilty and um, they, they recommended to the judge, the prosecutors recommended to the judge that I get the minimum sentence uh, possible, and the judge uh, sentenced me to seven months of house arrest. Which is not bad. Yeah, which is pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I managed to avoid jail time, which was uh, amazing. Very yeah. grateful for that. And um, yeah, so yeah, house arrest is not bad at all. I mean, you get to sleep in your own bed, eat your own food, watch TV, private bathroom, you know. Did Ephraim get charged? So in- he did, and he pled guilty as well. However, and he probably, if I had to guess, probably would have gotten a pretty light sentence as well, like me. However, before he got sentenced, he committed a second crime. And that's, you know, the whole a plea agreement is based on you committing no more crimes because the plea agreement works like, you know, you plead guilty, you tell the judge you're real sorry, you'll be a good boy from now on. And the judge says, okay, you learned your lesson, you know, so I can go easy on you. But if you commit a second crime after, you know, while you're waiting for sentencing for the first, you can't really say I learned my lesson. I'll never do this again. So, and, and it invalidates the plea agreement. Mm -hmm. So the prosecutors don't even have to tell the judge, go easy on this guy. They could say, throw the book at him. You know, he hasn't learned his lesson, you know, you know, he needs, uh, he needs some serious jail time. So what happened was that while he was awaiting to get sentencing, uh, on, on the, the, um, fraud charge, um, he kept on doing the arms business, even though they told him not to. And he got entrapped into a sting operation by the ATF. Um, they asked him to go meet an undercover agent in Orlando, which was outside of the jurisdiction he was allowed to travel while he was awaiting sentencing. So he broke wow. the conditions of his um, of his bond. And... Um, went to meet the undercover ATF agent. The ATF agent was like, yeah, we could do this business deal, but hey, check out this new gun I just bought. It's the latest HK, you know, uh, it's uh, the it's got these cool sights on it. And the Ephraim, of course, who's a gun nut, was like, oh, I just heard about that. Let me see. He was like, yeah, let's go to the range and shoot this baby. And, you know, like while he's holding the gun and, and he goes to the undercover ATF agent, he's like, what can I say? You know, once a gun runner, always a gun runner. <laughs> The agent is recording. Yeah, very cinematic. (laughs) And he's, you know, the agent is recording him, uh, you know, in his uh, hidden microphone. And after he says that, the agent whips out handcuffs, you know, handcuffs him. And he's like, you're under arrest. You're a felon in possession of a firearm. Because he had already pled guilty to the fraud charge. He's officially a felon. It's illegal for felons to be in possession of a firearm. You could get up to 10 years for that. So, so he got... um, he went to jail right then, uh, and they 
uh, did not allow him to post bail because he had already violated the terms of his previous bail, uh, you know, by traveling to Orlando. So he spent a good year in in county jail in Orlando area um, while awaiting sentencing for both of his cases. Uh, eventually, he got he got sentenced. He could have gotten sentenced for five up to five years for the fraud charge and up to 10 years for the gun charge. So he could have gotten a total of 15 years. He hired the best lawyers in uh, Miami, spent millions of dollars on his lawyers and ended up negotiating down to four years. So he ended up serving four years, which is not so bad compared to 15 years that he could could have gotten, but pretty bad no, compared to what bad. I got. Pretty yeah. good, pretty bad compared to what I got and what he could have gotten if he had just been, not been an idiot, you know? So, um, so yeah, wow. he ended up serving four years. He's out now. I mean, he's living in Miami as far as I'm aware. And um, what I've been told is that these days he's in the business of funding lawsuits because he, so many people have sued him because like he didn't just screw me over, he screwed pretty much everybody he ever did business with over. And so everyone he ever did business with eventually sued him. And so he realized, you know, he's very good at realizing um, what lawsuits are strong and what are weak, what makes a lawsuit strong or weak. And so in how the whole system works, and so he knows, um, so he's in the business of funding other people, people who want to sue somebody but can't afford it. He will go in there and fund the lawsuit and probably take the vast majority of the money, if not everything, nice. if he could, if he could, the way he works. But it's um, kind of slimy, I guess, it's, a little bit. It's, a, it's, it's that kind of business, and uh, yeah. he knows it well, and uh, you know that's the business he's in, I've been told. I've also been told by some investigative reporters who called me up at the time that during the pandemic, he was uh, in the business, he was supplying um, like medical equipment to the government, which would have been illegal for him to do, but he did it through like shell companies. So that I don't believe the reporter managed to nail down concrete evidence of this. So that's why he got away with it. But, mm. uh, but they did interview me asking me if I knew anything about it, which obviously I don't, I haven't talked to him in years. Um, wow. Yeah. Jeez. But yeah. But back to the to what you asked me about <laughs> about the invention of the beat buddy, more pleasant conversation. Well, um, explain maybe yeah. real quick as we get there. So we know you're a musician. We yes. know that there was that whole experience. Mm -hmm. Um can you explain what the beat buddy is? Because yes. uh, again, as I said before, I realize this is like a little bit of a break from our normal yes. uh your normally scheduled program with drum history, but it's mm -hmm. just a cool story and I think it's an interesting episode. But yeah. Uh, what is the beat buddy? So I'll I'll tell you how I came up with it, and I think that's a better explanation yeah. of yeah, what yeah. it is. Um, while I was under house arrest, I was very bored, <laughs> and I was playing lots of guitar. Um, I'd have my musician friends come by and visit me. You know, it wasn't like a lockdown, COVID style lockdown, but uh, because I could have people visit me, but I just couldn't leave my apartment. Um, had the ankle tracking monitor and everything, yep. so. Um, However, one musician that wouldn't visit me is uh, a drummer, right? Because no one's going to bring their entire drum set over my apartment just to jam. And even yeah. if they did, it would wake up my entire apartment. My neighbors wouldn't be too happy about it. So I really missed playing with a, with a drummer. Um, uh, because, you know, as every drummer knows, the, the drums are, you know, the beat is the energy of the music. You dance yes. to the beat. It's much more fun to play with a beat. So um, I bought a drum machine to replace, uh, you know, to have a beat to play along with. Uh, 
But the drum machine is, uh, you know, tabletop device. Anytime you want to change a, a beat, you know, when you're going from like verse to chorus or you want a drum fill or something, you have to press a button on the machine, which means I have to stop playing my guitar, press the button on the machine, go back to playing my guitar, and it interrupted the flow of the music. And so I tried to press the button on the drum machine with my toe, but I kept on pressing the wrong buttons and it was just a big pain in the butt. And I realized, you know, I have guitar pedals. Why don't I get a drum machine that's inside a guitar pedal and use the pedal to control the beat of the drum machine, you know, to like switch from verse to chorus to do drum fills. And I went online to try to find something like this because I was sure someone made it, but nobody made it. And I asked my musician friends and they thought, They'd never seen anything like it, but they all wanted one too. So they're like, let me know if you find it, because that sounds super cool. And so I thought, if everyone wants it, nobody's making it. This is a huge opportunity. And sure. uh, of course, I didn't know anything at the time of how to create an electronic product. Um, this is not something I'd ever done. So I started Googling and teaching myself how electronics are developed. Eventually, I found a company that could do the engineering. Uh, I was actually really lucky because they wanted way more money than I had because I had spent all my money on lawyers to keep me out of prison. So I was pretty broke at the time. Uh, and this company wanted way more money than I had to build it. But the, but the head of the company, the lead engineer was a drummer. And he told me, he's like, hey, you know, I'm a drummer. And all my musician friends are always begging me to jam with them. But I never have time to jam with them because I'm busy running an engineering company. <laughs> and I would love to jam sure. with them, but, you know, but I just don't have time. But so I know that they would love this thing. They would love the Beat Buddy because, you know, this it's, of course, it's not never going to be a replacement for a drummer, but it's a lot better than a backing track. Um you know, because you have live control of the beat. So it's not something boring, it's something interactive. And uh, and it's designed for, uh, you know, for a guitarist, a bassist, a keyboardist uh, that they could use at the same time without interrupting their musical flow. So I know this is gonna be really popular. So I really wanna build this. Uh, and, you know, that, that company uh, um, had only done stuff for government and big corporate customers in the past. They wanted to break into the consumer products market. So they thought that this would be a really cool demo of their capabilities in this new market. Sure. So they yeah. had a big incentive to, to build this. So they made me a very special deal where I pretty much gave them every last penny I had at the time as a down payment to show I was serious. And then they built the prototype for me and they just kept the engineering files back so I couldn't manufacture it until they until I paid them the rest. So what I did yeah. was uh, I took the working prototype that they gave me and I did a crowdfunding campaign. I put it on Indiegogo um, which for people, it's a competitor Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, raised through and uh, put it on the gear page and talk base, which are the big musician forums. Uh, and it, uh, it went really, really well. People were very excited about it. And I raised uh, $350,000 in one month. Wow, um, very yeah, nice. Which was enough money to pay back the engineers and get the files and to get the manufacturing started. And so that's how the Beat Buddy came to be. And it's, um, it's uh, uh, you can put, you know, it comes with, with um, uh, 200 what I call songs, which is like beat progressions. You have like a verse beat, a chorus beat, and all the associated fills. And the way it works is 
you tap the pedal it starts a beat uh, it start does an intro fill you could turn the intro fill on or off or if you like but uh then it goes into the main verse beat and then whenever you tap the pedal it does a drum fill and uh it does different fills every time so it sounds natural if you hold the pedal down it'll do a transition beat like another fill which will continue looping until you let go and at the end of the bar it always changes everything at the end of the measure so everything yeah. stays in time um at the end of the measure uh it'll change to another beat like your chorus beat so that's how you could transition from verse to chorus and back again you could also have multiple parts and uh, get direct access with an external MIDI controller. So there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, you could also put in your own beats on it. So you could create MIDI files on your on your DAW and put mm -hmm. those files into the into the beat buddy so you could have your own custom beats. Uh, we have a very active user forum at singularsound.com. Uh, where other community members uh, make beats and drum sets and upload it so you can download thousands of beats and hundreds of drum sets for free and it's constantly expanding and yeah. you could also create your own stuff of course um, and uh, as I said you can make your own drum sets out of wave files so you can uh, um, do cool uh, we have 10 drum sets that come built in uh, we also sell uh, professionally made drum sets online and beats uh, that people can download as as a as a like a premium content thing in addition to cool. all the free stuff that is on our forum um so it's a very very versatile uh drum machine that is really aimed at the at the musician who just wants to control it with a with a foot tap, uh, we yeah, have had yeah. uh, quite a few drummers. At, uh, as I was mentioning to you uh, before we started the podcast recording, we've had uh, quite a few drummers use this as their percussion section. So they'll turn the drum set to the percussion setting, and then they'll start that beat, and then they'll play along on their drum set to that. So it's like having their own percussionist that is not just a backing track. They can tap the pedal and do drum fills, do transitions also do accent what we call accent hits which is an additional foot switch you hit it and it'll do like a cymbal crash or a or a kick drum you could do like single drum hits uh to the you know to the button press uh yeah so which it sounds a, like it's it's a tool that drummers can actually exactly yes and percussionists can use yes. as opposed to i think everyone yes. now i mean there's been episodes on the history of like mm -hmm drum machines and electronic drums, which those are two different things, obviously, to clarify when people think electronic drums and Simmons and mm -hmm. things, those are like combined as opposed to the Lindrum and drum machines that create right. a beat mm -hmm. that is the enemy It people used to think <laughs> the enemy of right. the drummer and what's going right. to defeat and kill off the drummer. Right. I think people have learned that that's not really the case and, right. and you can use it with you. And it's cool because on your um, website, you have the song matching tool. Yes which provides you, I think it says there's 1,850 songs where it'll tell you the mm -hmm. actual beats to use for like Correct. Seven Nation Army, yeah. uh, all the small things, American right. Pie, and it right. goes on and on and on and on right. of what to actually use. Yeah. Um, but do you guys, like, as far as like getting natural drum sounds and programming mm -hmm. and getting a real feel of what mm -hmm. drums actually are, mm -hmm. Would you have any involvement from drummers? Well, I guess you said the the head, the guy at the the engineer was a drummer, so that yeah. had to help with yeah. getting getting it right. Absolutely. So it was a huge thing right from the beginning. We knew that even if the Beat Buddy has all these cool features, if it didn't sound good, people are going to hate it, right? Because musicians are super super picky, and you know, even if it's the most brilliant 
device in the world, if it doesn't sound good, they're, nobody's going to use it because sure. you know it's it, they'll get that bad emotional response to it. So we put a lot, a lot of effort into uh, uh, quite a few techniques to make the drums sound as natural as possible. One of the first things we did was one of the one of the big complaints that people have against drum machines is that, is that it sounds like a robot right it's too like rigid it sounds like it's too like frozen to a grid so yeah. what we did was when we made the beats for the beat buddy is we had a live human drummer uh play these beats on a real drum set with uh, midi triggers connected to it and so we recorded the midi notes of the live human drummer playing and then we did not quantize it we oh, didn't nice. we didn't we didn't quantize it to a grid so it comes out the way that drummer actually played it and so that gives it a much more natural rhythm. It's got a tiny bit of swing, you know, it's got sure. all the things a natural human drummer would play comes out in the Beat Buddy beats. That was the first thing that we did to make it sound natural. Another thing that we did to make it sound natural was that we have um, velocity layers, right? So we've got sample, when we made the drum sets, uh, the drum sets are just a collection of samples, right? Of different drums, drum hits, right? Recordings. And then the MIDI notes trigger those samples, which is what you hear. Um, and so what we did was instead of uh, having like, cause it sounds very different when you hit a drum head lightly or when you hit it hard, right? It's yeah. not just, so the old school drum machines, what they would do is they would just turn the volume up and down right yeah and that, that was yeah. one of the big sources of old drum machine sounding very robotic is because it's a, actually a different um a different uh, sound wave uh, uh you know profile you can yeah. call it you know different uh, frequency profile of whether you hit it hard or you hit it soft it's not just a volume thing so we recorded all the drum hits with different velocities and we didn't just record one for each velocity layer we recorded multiple because when a drummer hits the drum head at um like let's say you're doing like a drum roll right and it's in theory it's the same hit you know one after the other yeah. and uh the old school drum machines what they would do is they would just do the same hit over and over and that would make it sound like a machine gun it doesn't you know? sound good it, we've all heard that exactly comical exactly because no drummer plays like that there's always slight variation in the angle you hit the very slight variations in in how hard you hit where you hit on the drum and so yeah. it gives it a it gives it a different a different sound and so what we did is we record multiple samples for each velocity layer and we have a system that we call round robin round robin playback which is when you have multiple of the same note being played in a row, it doesn't play the same sample. It goes round the different samples for that velocity sure. layer. And that Smart. gives it that much more natural feel um, uh, when, when you're doing things like that. We also have uh, additional techniques like choke groups, like when you have like a fill and like there's certain drum instruments that you would never be played together at the same time, like at the end of... Uh, when you when you finish the uh like the fill um you know usually ends with a crash you wouldn't like you know, but the beginning of the beat would you know start maybe with a kick so we have certain systems so that when one drum instrument plays it 
chokes off the the sound of another which makes the transitions much smoother yeah um so yeah, yeah. so we have and these are just a few of the things that we developed um over the time of, of developing the beat buddy uh which makes it an extremely natural sounding drum machine we've gotten we actually uh, if you could see on the wall behind me we got four different awards and nice. uh uh, some of the major uh, the, the major ones. Let's see. Um, we got the Nam uh, Best in Show in 2015, which was cool. one of the biggest in the industry. We yeah. got the Guitar World uh, Platinum Award, uh, Vintage Guitar Approved Gear for the people who hate electronics. <laughs> we are approved by Vintage Guitar. There you and, go. <laughs> and Guitar Player Hall of Fame. So um, yeah, then and one of the big reasons we got these awards uh was because the drum machine sounded so natural because there's a, a huge um skepticism in the musician community against drum machine as you were saying you know people mm -hmm. were like oh this is going to destroy drummers and then there was kind of the whole backlash of oh drum you know only losers use drum machines it sounds like a robot it sounds like crap you know nobody should use drum machines ever and yeah. um and i think that we found this kind of niche where we developed a drum machine that sounded natural enough that musicians felt comfortable performing with it not just practicing in their you know in their garage but actually yeah. performing live gigs um and easy enough to use that they could do multiple things at one time uh so they could play their instrument as well as control the drums and the drum machine and, and that has allowed um uh, many solo musicians to do things that they never would have been able to do before. Every solo musician I know would love to play with a drummer, right? It, including me. I mean, yeah. that's, you yeah. know, it's, if you have a drummer available, nothing beats a good drummer, right? Um, yeah, but sure. the unfortunate fact is, is that most solo musicians just don't have that. They may have it occasionally, but they definitely don't have it all the time. And a lot of the gigs that that they may play, like in coffee houses, may not even have room for a full drum set. And so, you can turn it down more and you exactly. can control the volume. Yes. And, and I, I've had... Uh, yes. See, I've, I've, I've had experiences with like a friend who had, um, I believe it was the, I don't know if it was Easy Drummer or whatever mm -hmm. it's called within Logic, where he's more of like a metal guitarist. Mm -hmm. And like it's and you know and again he's doing this in his living room at that point in an apartment and it's not possible to have a heavy metal drummer come and play mm -hmm. but it's also quicker for him in that instance it was pretty amazing for me to listen where it was like it was kind of like holy crap this sounds unbelievable because he could change the the dynamics of everything and I think right. uh, you know it, when I think of these kind of beat things typically it would be like you'd almost press like swing on a or rock and roll on a little Casio keyboard and sure. you get that kind of fake sound. But the technology, even at that point, I was probably 10 years ago, mm -hmm. was starting to get pretty wild. And it sounds like this has taken it. And I've listened to your demos and stuff. Yeah. It has taken it to the next level. Yeah, thank you. Um, again, not a competition for real drummers, but this right. is like if if you know we've got a friend who always wants us to jam, and you don't want to jam with that friend, get him a beat buddy for for uh, Christmas, and then Absolutely. they'll be fine on their own. And and it's really great for um, it's of course great for the solo musician and for people who you know can't always find a drummer to jam with, but it's also really and particularly good for uh, beginner musicians, for people who are just starting out. Because, yeah. um, you know, one thing that um, 
that uh, every music teacher will tell their music students is practice with a metronome, right? They always- This is a metronome. It's a fun metronome. It's a fun metronome. And that makes all the difference because every beginner musician, the vast majority of them, I should say, um, hates practicing with a metronome because it's boring and it's, it just feels more like a chore. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's got it's got no groove. It's got no swing. You know, it's just yeah. a bleep, bloop, bloop, bleep, bloop, bloop, you know, it's cowbell and sounds a, or something. Even worse. <laughs> even worse than a cowbell. It sounds like synthetic. <laughs> yeah. 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 It sounds like a little like like a R2D2 robot or something. Exactly. And so uh, beginner musicians tend to avoid practicing with a metronome just because it's unpleasant and they suffer because of it, because then when they're learning you know how to play guitar or piano they're because they're not practicing to the metronome they tend to slow down on the hard parts and speed up on the easy parts and then when they try to go and actually play with a drummer or with other musicians their timing is totally off and they're shifting yeah. all over the place because they're not used to to keeping themselves in time to the to the beat um but so that's why we built the Beat Buddy Mini, which is a, a less expensive version of the Beat Buddy, uh, aimed specifically at at um, beginner musicians, at students. It's a bit less than half the price. Uh, Beat Buddy is about three hundred, and I think current price is three seventy nine. It's it's a professional level device. Um, a lot of professional musicians use it to tour with, and of course, they make their money back really quick. Uh, sure, you know uh, when they're One using show, it. Yeah. One show, they make that money back. And and they also have reported to us that they tend to get a lot more tips because, of course, as everyone knows, music sounds way better with the beat. And when yeah. the music sounds better, people tip more. So they make more per show as well. And so they, they earn that money back real quick. So it's it's a no-brainer for a, for a solo musician. But uh, we knew that that price is a little bit out of range of most beginner musicians. You know, beginner a beginner guitarist is going to spend like maybe 200 bucks on his guitar. He's not going to spend 400 on a drum machine. So we uh, created the Beat Buddy Mini, which is 149 uh, dollars. It's more in the realm of affordability for a beginner musician. And it has all the functionality of the main Beat Buddy. It just doesn't have the ability. Well, it's got a few differences. It's 16-bit sound quality versus the Beat Buddy's 24-bit sound quality. Sure. The Mini doesn't have MIDI sync. Uh, so you can't really connect it to like loopers and other effects that are time-based. The Beat Buddy has MIDI sync, so you can connect it to all your other MIDI-capable uh, uh, gear and or your DAW, your computer, and get it all synced up in time. Um, But as a beginner musician, you're probably not doing that. Uh, Beat Buddy is stereo. Yeah, yeah, there's people who like, and I mean drummers too, obviously, because this is drummers. Uh, There's people who like to experiment with the MIDI things and loading themselves into things and experimenting and just having this crazy rig and trying this stuff. Yeah, and there's some amazing stuff you could do with that, yeah. Yeah, and I'm looking at the reviews here, and there's a ton of good reviews, and I love seeing reviews like this. There's one. They're all very good, and it's five stars, but I love... (laughs) There's a (laughs) five-star review that says, haven't used it yet, exclamation point. That's it. It's like, okay, thanks for contributing that. That's really helpful. You see those on Amazon. People are so funny. Haven't used it yet, but I don't like it about some other electronics. At least he liked it, though he hasn't used it. it. He hasn't used it, but he liked it. So I can't complain uh, too much. Yeah. No, very cool. Um, 
All right. Yeah. Well, I will put the link in the description for all that stuff for, for yeah, this. Thank and you. One thing I think that maybe your uh, your audience would um, have a little bit more use for, though, I, I, as I said before, I do think that the Beat Buddy can be used by, and it has been used by drummers. Uh, it's not for everybody, of course, but sure. but it's but there have been drummers that have done very interesting things with it. Um, so uh, I, I've seen some live bands where the drummer was using a Beat Buddy, and like he cool. he had it set to like the electronic drum kit so he like was able to play along with his like acoustic drum set and have like over electronic yeah. beats and that sounded super super cool That's um awesome. yeah and um he also put the beats through some effects and he would like do some really cool effects on the beats and so it was really nice. really interesting experimental stuff that that has been done but uh we developed another product we have several products that people can see all on our website singularsound.com and um we developed a, another product that may be more use, uh, useful for your audience called the Cably, which is a cable winding device. Uh, yeah. So I came up with this idea because I was playing some some small shows uh, and I have my, I, I'm a singer and a guitarist. And so I had the beat buddy, of course, I had my vocal effects, I had my guitar effects. Um, and all in all, I had seven or eight cables that I had to wrap at the end of the show. And it was taking me forever. You know, some of them would get tangled or get dirty. I had to clean them off and wrap it on my elbow. You know, I was yep. too lazy to do the over under technique, you know, so I was just wrapping it on my elbow like a heathen. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and so, um, and and my bass player who was jamming with me you know uh he, he had like a single cable goes right into the pa and uh so i was like he's done he's going on he's at the bar having drinks with the girls and i'm like there yeah. wrapping cables for 15 minutes and i'm like this is so annoying i wish i could do this faster and my mom uh was really into gardening and she had one of these big garden hoses on a on a big wheel that she would roll mm -hmm. up and i thought man i if only i had like something that was designed for cables like that and so it came up with a cable which is a little wheel uh i'll put a picture yeah, up yeah, on put the, a picture yeah i was, yeah, I was yeah, looking yeah. 20 bucks it's not a bad deal yeah and uh it that the this cable will for most standard cables will fit cables between 20 and 30 feet so it's designed for the vast majority of musical instrument cables we are currently designing a product uh, a bigger version to fit cables of 100 feet uh, for the more pro musicians but the one that we have right now uh does uh fits 20 to 30 feet and um and you just wind it up real quick and it takes you 10 seconds to to have your cables all wound up in a nice small uh form factor mm, uh nice. and it's nicely protected for travel so your cables get uh, don't get damaged and another advantage of it is that you know oftentimes a musician is only like you know a few feet away from his guitar pedals or his amp or something but he has a 30 foot cable so you could just take a few feet out of the cable and just plug it in and everything else is nice and neat yeah. on the stage so the stage looks nicer you're less likely to trip over it break it great get for it studios dirty. too exactly yeah so yeah so that's uh uh so the cable c-a-b-l-i that's um, awesome. I got to look into that. I have to do a job. I do video and audio stuff and for mm -hmm. my job, but I, I got a job where I'm going to be going to San Francisco every other month coming up. Mm -hmm. And these, I have to use long HDMI cables. Mm -hmm. And it's like to pack all this up and fly with it. It's like, yeah, well, maybe that sounds like a good idea instead of having these yeah. crazy cable, uh, you know, 
because otherwise you're twisting and things are getting yeah. nuts. Yeah, that that's yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So yeah, so, so that's so that's a more general purpose musician product. Yeah, but yeah. that's good because we all yeah. have drum rooms where there's this crazy pile of exactly. We're all guilty of like, all right, it's clean in front of the drums, and then there's a mess of cables back where you're actually plugging it into your interface or whatever. Exactly. So yeah, very cool. So I'll link to Singular Sound um, uh, dot com in the description and put that Perfect. stuff there, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, David, this is cool, man. It's been, it's been great talking to you. Cause like Likewise. I said, I saw, I saw that movie a couple, a year or two ago and it, it came out a while back, but yeah. you never know. I would never guess that in, you know, a couple years I would be talking to the person who was doing it. <laughs> and, uh, life is weird like that. It, that <laughs> you know? I, I will definitely be the first one to agree with you. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. But, yeah. um, yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, so anything else as we wrap up, you want to tell folks like social media, all that good stuff, plug your, sure. plug your stuff. Sure. Yeah. So if people are interested in me personally, they could find me, uh, uh, on social media with just my name, David Packhouse. Uh, it's David P A C K O U Z. I'm on Instagram occasionally on X formerly Twitter, I guess we have to say now, yeah. um, you know, but, uh, yeah, I, I've got like, I usually announce new products and stuff on my Instagram. So if people are on Instagram, I would say, follow me there. If you're curious, you could find my YouTube channel. I've got my own personal music on it. If anyone's curious to hear it, you could also hear my, my music on Spotify. I've, I'm a singer songwriter. Cool. Um, so you can Spotify, Apple music, all the major platforms. All you have to do is search my name. You'll find it. Um, but yeah, we've got lots of cool products, uh, being currently developed and if you would like to um, to uh, uh, stay in touch to to be informed of when that would be, I would say follow me on Instagram, and you could follow my company Singular Sound on Instagram as well. Just type in Singular Sound, and you'll find it as well. Cool, perfect. Like I said, I'll link to everything and uh, all that good stuff. So I hope everyone enjoyed this. I know it's different, but um, yeah. there's more drummy stuff coming up soon. That's going to be uh, ultra drummy drum history stuff. So this is a nice little change of pace. So. Uh, on that note, David, I appreciate you being here, man, and sharing your story. And it's been great to meet you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. <laughs>